Heidi Mike, Ethan, a Hortaka. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Happy Friday. It's nice to be with you. On today, uh, Prime Minister Chris Luxon has performed a swift U turn saying he will pay back the housing allowance he claimed for living in his Wellington apartment. Uh, the Prime Minister had claimed the accommodation supplement is worth up to 52 grand a year while living outside a Premier house. So that uh, in a minute. Talking gun law reform, the Associate Minister of Justice said today, we are rewriting the entire Arms Act, and that means everything is on the table, the good, the bad, the ugly. Now, could that mean the return of semi-automatic machine guns? And what is going down in Wellington? Earthquake-prone Reading Cinema Complex and explain it today. One councillor on social media said Courtney Place is turning into Johnsonville. And Reading's neglect is to blame, said Councillor Ben McNulty. Bit harsh, isn't it, perhaps? And what is a concert that you snuck into? We talked about this with uh, my producer Sam and Jesse Mulligan at 3.45. We got quite a response, enough response. I thought, I'm going to continue this. Um, I said I snuck into... What was it? No, forget forget the name now. It'll come to me. Here's one. Boyfriend and I snuck into a 1993 Split Ends concert at Mount Smart Stadium at 17 years old. Started with hitchhiking from a suburban street in Kingsland. A kind person asked us where we were going and dropped us there. He liked our sense of adventure. We just jumped the fence, had a blast. So a concert that you snuck into. 2101 is text. You can email thepanel at rnz.co. With me today, Joe McCarroll, the editor of NZ Gardener. Kia ora, Joe. Kia ora, Wallace. Nice to have you here. Good evening to you. Also today, David Farrer, owner of Curia Market Research, editor of Kiwi Blog, and a member of the National Party. David, nice to have you on the program. Great to be back. So, David and Joe are joining me, and straight into this, Prime Minister Christopher Luxon has performed a swift U-turn saying he will pay back the housing allowance he claimed for living in his Wellington apartment. Uh, he had claimed the accommodation supplement. It's worth up to $52,000 a year while living outside a premier house. Uh, Luxon owns uh, more, seven mortgage-free houses, according to his financial declarations. Now, here he was just a couple of hours ago. Well, it's just an entitlement. There'll be many MPs and ministers in a similar situation, I suspect. And so, um, but the bottom line is, uh, that's the situation that I'm in. I'm being as honest and as straight up with you as I can be. So um, you're accepting the money because it's within the rules and you can? Uh, because it's part of the entitlements that all MPs and all ministers, uh, irrespective of uh, where they come from, as long as they're outside the Greater Wellington area, that's been the rules and long-standing rules. So that was then, this is now. The same pressure Luxton faced was also faced by Bill English when he collected the accommodation supplement to live in his family home in Wellington. He paid that back as well. With us, uh, no doubt, looking across this is political commentator Peter Dunn. Kia ora, Peter. Kia ora, This became a really big political story today. You had that um, accommodation supplement. It, uh, you know, it, it got the uh, uh, eyes and ears of many New Zealanders Two hours is a long time in politics, uh, Peter. No-brainer that was a U-turn? Yes, it was, and, and it was the right decision. I mean, the reality is that the Prime Minister is correct. He is entitled to claim this uh, level of, of, of funding for his accommodation in Wellington. He'd be, he'd be uh, amongst many, many MPs in doing so on both sides of the House over many years. 
and many of us have used the, the funding from the Crown to help fund their own election campaigns in previous years. So he's right on that front. But on the front of perception and the way it looked at a time of you know, big restraint in government spending, it was, um, I'm surprised he even contemplated doing it in the first place. I want to ask you this, Peter. How do you go about making a claim? Do you have to initiate that claim or is it automatically, as a Prime Minister, paid into your bank account? Do you know? I don't know because I was a Wellington MP and of course Wellington based MPs living in their own home didn't qualify for any housing allowance so it never came my way at all Um, but I suspect you've got to initiate it I suspect you've got to provide some documentation to the parliamentary service but I don't know that for sure I'd be stunned if you didn't Okay, so um, you suspect that he knew about it what does that say to you about uh, perhaps or some might say his morality you know we've been asked to um, have tough choices. There are no free rides uh, in this era, and yet this. I don't think it's a moral issue because, as I say, it's an entitlement. It's set out by the uh, by the um, the remuneration authority. But I think it's an issue of bad judgment, and I think he's corrected that uh, pretty swiftly. Uh, and frankly, the bigger issue is uh, why isn't Premier House fit for purpose? That's where the Prime Minister should reside when he's in Wellington. And it's not a party political thing here. I just think that Parliament needs to get its head together and make sure that Premier House, if it's to be the Premier House, is in fact fit to be inhabited. Well, I want to come back to that as well. Joe. Well, I guess I, I don't quite agree with you, Peter. I mean, I think it is a moral issue. You know, I think this is morally bankrupt. And I mean, not fiscally bankrupt, just to be clear, fiscally doing pretty pretty well. But morally, I just think the optics are on it are appalling. I think the two things are separate. The optics are appalling, but morally he's done nothing wrong. Whether we agree with it or not is a separate question. Well, I mean, you say he's done nothing wrong, but I've got to say I was wondering... I mean, I remember when I started working and there was sort of a payment for your dinner hour and there was a payment, extra payment for if you had to wear glasses and I think I got a bonus payment because I was fast at shorthand as a journalist. And I don't have any of those allowances now. So how many allowances and subsidies and extra payments are our MPs eligible to claim for? Because I don't know many members of the working poor. Those that come... To live, sorry, those that come to Wellington from out of Wellington are entitled to claim for their accommodation while they're here on parliamentary business. What's developed over the years has been a practice where um, a number have bought their own homes in Wellington, apartments, etc., and have effectively rented them back to themselves and had the rent paid by the Crown. Now, that's permissible within the rules. Uh, he's not the first to have done it. He won't be the last. Should a Prime Minister do it? No. And I think he's okay. correct in, in deciding not to. Let's bring David Farrer in. Yeah, look, it's a classic example of the difference, I guess, between the business judgment and the political judgment. From a business point of view, not only was it within the rules, you can absolutely make a case that the Prime Minister of New Zealand shouldn't have to pay for his own Wellington accommodation out of his own pocket. He could be renting his apartment out, getting thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year. So he is actually taking a pay cut to do this. But from the political point of view, you've asked the whole public sector for pay restraint. Yeah. What's the optics of it? It was pretty terrible. The good thing from a political management point of view, I guess, because there's been comparisons, even though they're a bit different to the Bill English scandal, is Bill English took two to two and a half months to do a U-turn. Uh, 
Christopher Luxon did it in, I think, 24 hours. So if you're going to say, look, this isn't worth the political heat, right. it's going to be a distraction, don't do it two months down the track. Do it straight away and just say this is not an issue. Nonetheless, worth, n- nonetheless, David and Peter, it was was he not the first prime minister in what thirty four years to claim this payment? He's probably the first prime minister in about that period of time. Oh, no, I'm wrong because Jacinda Ardern didn't live in the Premier House, but he'd be one of the few prime ministers in that time that haven't attempted to live in Premier House. She decided it wasn't fit for purpose. Uh, Chris Hickens obviously stayed in his own home in Upper Hutt when he was Prime Minister, and Luxon decided not to move into Premier House because it wasn't fit for purpose. So as I said before, I think that's the bigger issue. It's a bit embarrassing to have the home of your leader uh, not fit to live in. Just imagine if it was the White House or 10 Downing Street in that condition. Right. Fair point, Joe. Well, you you know, I think we've as a taxpayer, we've just got it the worst both ways. We're funding someone to live in their own mortgage-free home and we have um, repairs needing to be done to the accommodation that is provided. But I don't necessarily agree with you, David. I don't think if he's backtracked now, it's going to be forgotten about. I think he comes across as a cynical and short-sighted grifter. And I think oh. this, this should be a, a, a stench that lingers. David. Now, well, time will tell what impact this has, but generally my observation is people have almost been a bit relieved just because they didn't want this to carry on and be a big issue. I think Jacinda, by the way, Peter, did live in Premier House for yes, quite some that. while. Yeah. I think her baby was there for a while. But you're right, she moved out some say. Thing is, we it's a real problem, especially in times of fiscal restraint. Like we have these seven five sevens that are so unreliable. We have to fly two of them around the world to transport the PM. <laughs> Obvious solution is we should get an executive jet for the Prime Minister for official travel. What, what Prime Minister He should wants buy one to and rent it back to us money on that. And likewise, no Prime Minister wants to be seen spending money on their own official residence. So um, I'm not sure there's going to be the solution that there should be, which is the Prime Minister's official residence should be a place you can live. Right. Just to say, just to, I just want to come back to this allowance, uh, Peter and David, because that has been the chat. You know, here you have a person who does uh, – and. Through hard work, you know, he's come from modest means and well done him. He's done extremely well in life. But nonetheless, you owe these seven mortgage-free homes. You've been paid half a million plus and yet you've paid this accommodation supplement, Peter. You know, on the same day when it's been reported that the free school lunch program is going to be up for review. I think there are two things here. The, the optics are appalling. I totally agree with that. I totally get that. And I'm surprised at the lack of political judgment to which David refers allowed it to get this far. The second point, though, is the fact that he owns seven homes or 70 homes mortgage-free is irrelevant. The remuneration authority determines the conditions for MPs' payments, including the Prime Minister, and determines the allowances to which they are entitled. Uh, now, whether he chooses to claim it or not is his business. As I say, I think that was a political mistake to do so. But don't say that you know he shouldn't be getting it uh, because he didn't determine it. It's determined by an independent authority. They're going through the same exercise at the moment uh, with respect to setting salaries and conditions for the current parliament. Peter, do you think there... Sorry about this, Joe. Uh, Peter, yeah, Peter, do you think there is a case that the allowances and who is entitled to them should be um, made tighter? Do you think there oh, is a case where if you're paying off a mortgage, it's different if you're paying rent? 
Yeah, but that's a matter for the remuneration authority. I mean, we, the problem we, we, we've got into now is we've got a standalone authority that makes those decisions. Uh, for many, many years, Parliament made them, and that was the worst of all worlds. So we've had a, we've had a, we, back in the, I think, early 80s, we set up a standalone remuneration authority. And every time it makes a decision, people say, oh, Parliament should overrule it. So you've got this sort of silly situation, you know. Uh, if, if it's for the authority to determine the conditions under which it thinks allowances ought to be paid. Now, whether members seek to claim them is another matter at all. But don't, don't say that members shouldn't be getting these things because they don't determine them. And it's a bit like saying, I'm offering you a payment. And if you accept that payment, then you're the one that's a problem, you know, when you've got a free will not to do it. So I, I just think we've got to be a bit staunch here and say, if we've got a process that sets these things independently, the worst thing we can do is start to tamper with it. Um, this, this, it's such a big response to this. It's quite extraordinary. If you think that the Prime Minister should pay for his own accommodation at Wellington, that's, that's really unreasonable, considering that he could have rented that property out and gotten rent for it. His pay is his pay. He could have found a cheaper option, but there's no use saying that somebody should be providing the accommodation themselves at no cost to the taxpayer. When you want somebody who is a good business person, this is how business works. Another one here. I disagree with Peter Dunn. Just because it's legally permissible does not necessarily mean it's right or ethical. It shows the very business ideals that treat people badly. Bend the rules at the expense of others. There's a lot coming through around... Um, the legalities of it, entitlement versus the morality of it. Um, for now, Peter, um, really appreciate your time. Thank you for the quarter. Thank you. Uh, 22 past six, the panel, uh, NZ National. Now, police were granted new powers to search offenders with the firearms prohibition order, their vehicles and their premises for firearms at any time, Associate Minister of Justice Nicole McKee said today. The Christchurch mosque terrorist would not have been under such an order because he would not have been under the attention of the police, she added. Also, the Associate Minister of Justice said, quote, we are rewriting the entire Arms Act that means everything's on the table, the good, the bad, the ugly. And the alleged gun buyback scheme had moved guns into the grey market, from the grey market to the black market, she said. Uh, with us is Gun Control NZ co-founder Nick Green. Kia ora, Nick. G'day, Wallace. How are you? Good, thank you. So quite the announcement today. Firstly, on that first point, uh, it's going to be easier for police to search gang members for firearms. Um, on first read, Nick, no-brainer, isn't it? I think you want the police to have all the powers that they need to disarm dangerous people. But you know, the really important thing here is that this isn't a magic bullet, and it's not a substitute for all the powers that we currently have in the Arms Act, which keep the public safe. So... Nicole McKee told RNZ the coalition's agreement to rewrite the Firearms Act means, quote-unquote, starting from scratch. Um, it's a big act. Is there anything that you are most concerned about? I think there's three things that we're concerned about. Uh, the first is the recent changes brought in tougher licensing standards to make sure that people who have access to guns are indeed fit and proper and made it easier for the police to, to disarm those who weren't. We'd want to retain those. 
The second one is uh, universal registration of firearms, which is really important to the other side of the equation, like making it harder for criminals to get guns in the first place. And the third thing we want to retain are those controls and prohibitions on the really most dangerous weapons like semi-automatic weapons. And of course, Ms. McKee has just said that that's all back on the agenda. So right now, I'll bring our panellists in. Actually, no, I'll bring them in now. Joe, what are your concerns, your questions? Well, Nick, you just mentioned um, that one of the things you were supporting was tightening, if I've understood you correctly, tightening the registration process to make it harder for criminals to get weapons. Do you think high-risk offenders are going through the registration process? The real benefit of the registry is that um, it makes it, it shuts off two really uh, critical sources of guns to criminals, and that's thefts and straw man purchases. We know from the police these are the major sources. And once people are accountable for every single firearm, that becomes a much more risky gambit. What did you think of the legislation that was drafted after the mosque massacre? Do you think that was fit for purpose? I think there are parts you might want to look again. I mean, the government has signalled that they're looking again at the registration of um, fire, of shooting ranges. It's not entirely clear what that was supposed to achieve. So there's definitely some rooms to improvement, but there's not a case for a wholesale um, boots and all reform. Most of what you need is already there. All right, David. Yeah, well, look, rewriting the Arms Act from scratch isn't actually necessarily a bad thing. It's over 40 years old with everything that's happened with technology. Having a first principles based, what do we want to achieve is not bad. Now, there's stuff I would not like to change. I don't see a need outside of incredibly controlled circumstances for semi-automatics in New Zealand. So, you know, there are, there's going to be, the devil will be in the detail uh, of what comes up. I don't think the fact it's a rewrite from scratch should be assumed that means everything is up for debate, every policy. It means you're going to do a first principles rewrite. What I do have, I'm not going to call it concerns. I wasn't convinced about the gun registry when it came in because the Canadian example was quite terrible. Now, hopefully the way it's implemented in New Zealand, you know, is going to work. So I think, you know, judgments like individual gun registration should be based on actually what's happened, how effective has it been. Nick? Yeah, that's a fair point. The, the Canadian case was very specific to the time and Canadian circumstances, and there's lots that's been learned since. I think... I mean, yes, you're right, a first principles review in theory is fine, but the question is who's doing that review and do they have a fixed view about what policies they want or are they genuinely going to look at the evidence and genuinely think about what works for public safety? I'm I'm not really convinced that's the case here. The issue around semi-automatic weapons will raise eyebrows. What sort of a place do you think, Nick, semi-automatic weapons have in our society? What's your thoughts about a possible return of, for example, AR-15-type firearms? I think the last set of reforms set the right balance. Yes, there are some legitimate purposes, particularly for things like pest control, but there are a pretty narrow range of circumstances. Um, you know, you're always striking a balance between the convenience of gun owners and public safety, and I think they got it right. It's not at all clear to us that opening up access to things like very niche sporting um, competitions is really worth the risk to the public. Is there a risk? I mean, I'm, I'm actually pro the idea of registering guns. You know, I think we register cars and dogs and, you know, things that can do a lot less damage. Well, I guess both can do damage in their own way. But 
Oh, I guess is there a risk that that information will be kept safe? You know, if you knew where every gun in New Zealand was, that seems the potential mm. there is is all bad. Privacy is definitely important, but you know, lots of countries have registries, and you know, they're not. There haven't been examples of wholesale um, raids by criminals using them to steal things. So I think you need to kind of keep things in perspective. Very, very good, Nick. Hey, thank you very much uh, for your time. That's uh, Gun Control NZ co-founder Nick. Green. Um, Paul says more uh, feedback coming through lots this evening uh, on the issue of Prime Minister Chris Luxon paying back that um, accommodation supplement. I think it was $13,000 he'd had a part payment. Um, regarding MPM Minister living away from home allowance, it makes sense when it's not their primary home. It is a route when it becomes their permanent home, but they still claim the allowance as happened with Bill English. His wife worked in Wellington. His kids went to a school in Wellington, and he claimed the living away from home allowance. From an IRD perspective, tax-free allowances apply when it's temporary, when it's permanent, not considered a legitimate payment. I wanted to ask, actually, David, uh, just regarding Premier House, I've never actually been there. Have you? Yeah, many, many times uh, since the 90s. It, it's a. Uh, I haven't been in there too recently. I wasn't on Jacinda's guest list as much as some of the former uh, occupants of Premier House. Um, is it grand? But, you know, is it, it grand? A lovely function. What's that? Sorry. Is it grand? It is quite grand. It is not. I actually think Vogel House is probably a nicer house where the PM used to live in Lower Hutt. But. It's a good house for functions. It's a good house to have charities host events there. Other people can do events there, um, etc. It's got quite lovely grounds. Mm. Um, but you know, having also been in some overseas places like Kirribilli House in Sydney, uh, which has the most incredible harbour side view mm. and things, it, it's not in the same league. But when, when I used to go there quite a bit, um, admittedly, I wasn't generally in the living area. Um, it was a, a a nice place where people would like to go there for it has some history um, and it's very well set up for large functions because it's got really high roofs etc um, nice nice views of, of oh. the Thorndon neighborhood. I mean, I just want to come back to that point. I know. I mean, you are so mate. Were you too harsh calling the prime minister a grifter? I. I, I really take Peter Dunn's point that he was entitled to this, but I think it was such a political misstep to take it. I think entitled is the word there. I think I, you should have seen that. Okay. You should have seen that coming. I, I, I really resonate, though, with Peter's, uh, and actually David's uh, alluding to it here, that actually we do need a place of residency befitting um, a person like the Prime Minister. As we you, do. I and mean, we, I mean th- this needs to be maintained. Why, why has it sort of become so, not dilapidated, but unmaintained? Well, potentially people, um, previous Prime Ministers did not have the same uh, emphasis on having a home for their family. And that's no. a totally reasonable thing to want. The home you live in, you should be able to live there with your kids. It should be a completely livable home. Um, but, I mean, that is kind of a separate problem to claiming this entitlement, I, claiming right. this okay. allowance, I think. You're on the panel, uh, NZ National. We are with David Farah and Joe McCarroll. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
for full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.